0: Praise the Lord. Good morning. All right. Hallelujah. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, it says, Now great multitudes, I want you to think about that phrase before I start reading the rest of it. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. I'm sorry. But it says now great multitudes went with him i want you to picture this scene if you would great multitudes that means there's a lot of people that are following jesus around and just picture this if you can in your mind it says he turned and said to them so you got crowds and crowds of people that are following jesus and he stops turns around and addresses the giant group of people, okay? And some of you can imagine, a uh, you've seen famous people with multitudes of people following them. We don't see that very often, do we? It almost has to be a celebrity or a famous person, but multitudes are following him almost like a celebrity, and he stops right in the middle and he turns around to address them, Okay? And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, cannot be my disciple. Wow, he really knows how to make friends. He must have read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) So he turns, there's a real multitude that's following after him. A celebrity status, everybody's following him, stops and turns and says, and and, and that's hard, right? And he goes on and he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he begins to tell a couple of examples here. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you help me, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would um, speak, Lord, through an imperfect. Um, Messenger, Lord. And Lord, that you would give ears to hear from imperfect listeners, Lord. Help us, Lord, today. We need you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Last week I did a message on um, sincere faith, making a sincere profession of faith and following up that sincere profession. With behavior that is in keeping with a good profession of faith. Today I want to talk about what it means to be a real disciple uh, from a person who would have the authority to answer uh, what it means to be a true disciple. Now, we all at one time have been um, converts. We've come to Christ and we've decided to serve Christ to be the Lord of our life. Now, Jesus has all of these people that are following Him. They're following behind Him. There's large crowds of people. And um, Jesus, how many know that Jesus wants everybody to come to Him? He says, if you come to Me, I will in no wise cast you out. And He's telling everybody to come to Him. All who are thirsty, Come. So this isn't a situation where Jesus is trying to say, don't come to me. This is a situation where he's trying to say, I want you to continue to follow me and be a follower, but I'm afraid that if your mentality is not right, that you can't really truly follow me. And what Jesus is trying to do is have true disciples true followers, true people who won't turn away when the going gets tough. And so what he needs is true disciples. And so Jesus is trying to tell us here how we can be true disciples. And in this definition of what it means to be a true disciple, uh, he uses a term called, Count the cost. How many think counting the cost is important? Don't no, we do it every day. We count the cost of anything that we want to buy, anything we want to purchase, anything that we need. And we say to ourselves, do I, number one, have the money to buy it? And then after you decide, do I have the money to buy it? Well, that definition of money to buy it, it can be a couple different ways to look at it. You know, in the one way, you can say, Yeah, I can potentially come up with the money. I can, I mean, you could always sell your car or your house if you really had to buy something, right? But then what comes into the equation is what's called cost benefit analysis. How many have ever heard that term in financials? Financial people know this because if you're in an organization and that organization has any type of financial structure, They will have some form, whether it's uh, raw or whether it's more refined, they'll have some ability to determine what is the cost-benefit analysis. Now, we do it in our own mind in our personal finances. Yes, I would love to have the sports car, but the benefit of having a sports car is probably not worth selling my house to buy it. Let me understand the benefits of the sports car um, outweigh or don't outweigh the cost. Okay, so you have cost-benefit analysis. Um, cost-benefit analysis, in fact, I was reading uh, in, in, in accounting. How many know that it's always good material when you get accounting material for sermons? You can always count. It, it won't be a real snoozer if you have accounting material, right? <laughs> So cost-benefit analysis, there are two main applications of a cost-benefit analysis to determine if an investment or decision is sound by telling how much its benefit outweighs its cost. How many of you know that you don't take on a project unless the benefit outweighs the cost? If the cost outweighs the benefit, it's not sound judgment to do the project, right? Everybody is following me? Okay, number two, to provide a basis for comparing investments or decisions, comparing the total expected cost of each option with total expected benefits. So basically, Jesus is telling them, he he has followers by the droves. In fact, a lot of uh, ministers would say, that's where I'm trying to get my ministry, man. How many know that churches really spend a lot of marketing time, marketing energy to get crowds and crowds and crowds of people? And that's not a bad thing because you get crowds and crowds of people, you can present the gospel. You can present the gospel and people receive the gospel and people become followers of Jesus. Here's where the problem lies. Jesus is trying to sort out from a giant crowd of people, and this is where we have problems, especially in a really big church. Because how many people know you have a whole church full of followers of Jesus? But we just don't know how many disciples are in there. And Jesus three times in this passage that we're reading this morning, three times says you cannot be. disciple. That term, I wish I could interpret it in the Greek in a different way where it says you would be a second-rate disciple, or you would be a disciple that's not as good as another, or you um, have potential, you're just not there yet. But he says definite terms you cannot be. Now we've already said that Jesus wants everybody to be. Jesus wants everybody to come to Him. Jesus won't cast anybody out. Jesus says, everybody who's thirsty, come. So we know the problem's not with Him, because He's always accepting, He's always receiving, He's always wanting, He always desires. But something in the process isn't being received right. Because he's looking at the person and what he's saying is they either have properly counted the cost or they haven't counted the cost. You say, well, where's your accounting term come in? Because counting the cost is not just counting the expense. Everybody following me? If it's just counting the expense then it's not fully what Jesus is asking here. Because what he's asking for is a cost-benefit analysis. He's asking you, do the benefits outweigh what I'm asking you to pay? And there's a, in fact, it's really interesting, cost-benefit analysis, this is some history here, The Corps of Engineers with the Federal Act of 1936 kind of brought this terminology to the United States. The federal government decided that you couldn't do a project until you first did a cost-benefit analysis, and it was for a federal waterway infrastructure. And then the Flood Control Act of 1939 established CBA and federal policy Requiring that you had to present the benefits and they had to outweigh the cost. I mean, think that's important. I mean, think that they always do that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they actually always do it, but I, but it is really important because your ability to complete the project means you have to be sold on the benefits. You have to believe that the benefits so outweigh the cost that we're willing to have people drive around orange barrels for a good portion of their lifetime. Okay, now I just, it's, now I just actually explained something very practical, right? Now you understand because why are we driving around orange barrels all the time? Well, maybe, uh, maybe you remember how it used to be before the Lloyd Expressway had those nice little exits. You can kinda of pull off onto how I many have you ever been on a road that has all street lights? And so cost benefit analysis will actually tell you, man, it's worth cutting up our roads and running around road construction signs and doing all this. It may not seem like it from day to day, but twenty years down the road you look back and you say, Man, that was of great benefit and you practically forget about all the things we went through, right? Serving the Lord is the same way. Jesus is a different kind of salesman. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to serve the Lord because there are all kinds of things that He's going to ask me to do and those things are going to be kind of hard for me. It's going to cost me some inconvenience. Now, now, get this, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for all of this blessing to be in our life, but he asked us for some things too, and we've got to count that cost, he says. But what I really want you to notice is the difference between how Jesus operates and how Satan operates, because in our minds, I think sometimes we think that Jesus is asking something and Satan asks nothing. That I actually have to do something if I serve God, but with Satan I have to do nothing if I avoid God. And the difference is in the way that their plan is presented. How many have ever hated to have sales material where there's what's called false advertising? False advertising on the front of the page is all the benefits. Oh, man, you're going to get cable TV for $13.99 a month. $13.99 a month. We're going to pay for all your equipment. We're going to pay for everything. We're going to service it. You're going to get 188 channels. Some of you know what they're doing, right? It's called bait switch. Bait switch. Bait switch. False advertising. You say, well, it's not false because you're getting the benefits. Yeah, but all that tiny little print on the backside. How many know benefits in big letters, bad stuff in small letters? And you say, well, what's that have to do with Jesus' message? It doesn't. It has to do with Satan's message. Satan is the ultimate false advertiser and bait and switch. On the front, he says in big font, big beautiful letters, fun, fun, fun. Fun, fun, fun. Do what you want. Eat, drink, be merry. Can you see everything on that page? And I want you to think of every lie that the enemy has ever told you. And that's what the front of the page looks like. But the back of the page has lots of tiny little writing on it. And this salesman doesn't tell us anything about the bad results. Doesn't talk about depression. Oh, you're laughing. This, this is not my funny part of my message. I, this is where we get somber. <laughs> I love him. He's always happy. But the back of the page is a lot of bad things. It's depression. It's relationship problems. It's it's um, just a lot of things. And you can fill in the blank all this tiny lettering that he doesn't tell you about. And isn't very realistic about. and And isn't, you know, part of the perceived plan because all I read was the front and but I'm gonna to have to go through if you knew all the things you would have to go through if you accepted the world's plan of living you wouldn't sign up for it just like if the front of the page for the satellite company cable company if the front said all the negative and the little print on the back said the positive they wouldn't have very many people that would buy their service When they find out that the price is going to jump up to this, and when they find out that when you cancel, you have to pay this and you have to pay that and and you have to buy this, okay, not very many people would buy it because of that. Well, here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus is that salesman. How many have ever had a salesperson that was just so honest? Or... You probably see it in financial services. I know these guys. They're they're what's called hard sellers. And the hard seller will sell you on all the benefits, but they won't be truthful with you about the negatives. And Jesus is the type of person who, when all the crowd is following him, how many know he's not telling them what they want to hear? He stops. And there's a whole group of people that are around. And what Jesus should do is He should say all the benefits of following Him. Like, you know what? I'm the king of the universe. You know what? You're going to have this and this and this and this. All these wonderful things. But what He tells them is, this is what you're going to need to survive. This is what you're going to need to follow me. He tells you the most difficult things up front in order for us to succeed. He doesn't hide anything. He's out in the open. He's transparent, and he turns around and he tells them exactly the toughest things they're going to encounter because he's getting ready to pay the price. In fact, in this part of his ministry, he's been all over Galilee ministering, and now the Bible says he sets his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. And he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to endure a crucifixion and a cross, and he's going to pay the price for us. He's already counted the cost. He knows what he's about to endure, and he's trying to tell people as he goes along that just be ready. I want you to survive. I want you to be my disciple. I want you to continue to follow me. But in order to do it, in order to receive the eternal blessings, and here's this... You may have ever heard of a thing called uh, Pascal's Wager. Have you ever heard of that term? Pascal's Wager, his ideal was that rationally, whether or not to believe in the Lordship of Christ and His atonement should depend on two factors. The value of what you stand to gain or lose by believing or not and the probability that it's true. How many know that's true cost-benefit analysis? And he was actually a mathematician in the 17th century, around the late 1600s, and that was an ideal that people hadn't heard before. Pascal's wager was, what is the benefit if I serve the Lord, and what is the benefit if I don't? And the benefit of knowing the Lord is all amazingly th- eternal things. It's like the cost is, I have some discomfort in this world. I'm, people don't look at me the same in this world. I might lose some prestige. I might lose some comfort. Uh, I might have to stand you know, firmly in front of my family. I might be ridiculed by my family, my friends. See, Jesus is telling you all the negatives, which aren't that bad, really. But he's trying to tell you the benefit of following me outweighs anything that you could possibly do in this world. In fact, you look at the cost of anything, you look at the cost of a car. You say, well, man, my car's of great benefit. It allows me to go to work And earn more money to pay for my car. (laughs) Cost of a house is of a great cost. But it allows me to have a place to live. And so we always have all these costs that are very important and very valuable. And But eternity, what is bigger than that? The Bible says, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so, eternally, there may not be anything bigger. To be his disciple is to be his forever. It's to inherit eternal life. It's a difference between heaven and hell. How many of you know that? And he's saying, count the cost, do a cost benefit analysis. And what Pascal said was if it's wrong, I've lost nothing. But if it's correct, I've lost everything. That's the Pascal wager. If it's right, I've gained everything. But if it's wrong, I've lost nothing. How many know that? And so Jesus begins down this road trying to uh, help them understand. In fact, listen to what Paul says from the Amplified. This is really good. Paul understood this cost benefit analysis. Whatever former things, Philippians 3 7 from the Amplified, whatever former things I had that might be of gain to me, I've come to consider it as one combined loss for Christ's sake. How many know it's accounting terms? What was once a gain, I've considered now a total loss for Christ's sake. Furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to the possession. Of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding Him more fully and clearly. For His sake, I have lost everything and considered all to be mere rubbish, refuse, dregs, in order that I may win or gain Christ the anointed one. Do you hear the cost benefit analysis there? I have everything in Christ and everything else in comparison is a loss. So what does Jesus say we need to be his disciple? First of all, we have to de- define disciple. The Greek word translated the word disciple is mathētōs comes from the word that means to learn by practice or experience a disciple, someone who is undergoing a process of being taught by instruction, personal hands-on training, to follow after and behave like Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me ask you, are you a follower? Meaning I'm the crowd of people that's following Jesus and go to churches on the weekends And do you see this group of people that's following, or am I actually a disciple? Am I one that's learning to be like him with hands on training and experience, and and everything that I see him do, I'm trying to do? And um, so he begins to go through. In fact, I read this in a uh, newspaper or a magazine article. It says. Converts are believers who live like the world. Disciples are believers who live like Jesus. Converts are focused on their values, their interests, their worries, their fears, their priorities, and their lifestyles. Disciples are focused on Jesus. Converts go to church. Disciples are the church. Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it hear that? Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it. Converts cheer from the sidelines. Disciples are in the game. Converts hear the word of God. Disciples live it out. Converts follow the rules. Disciples follow Jesus. Converts are about believing. Disciples are about being. Converts are comfortable. Disciples make sacrifices. Converts talk, disciples make disciples. So Jesus goes on and he begins, and you've got to keep all this context in Luke together here. Because what is he talking about in Luke chapter 14 at the end here? He stops in front of the crowd and he's trying to explain to them what it's going to take for you to be my disciple. And so the first thing he looks at when he's talking about What does it take to be my disciple? He says something that really, probably, probably really shook up the Jewish people. Because uh, the fifth commandment is, honor your mother and your father. And Jesus was all about honoring your mother and your father. But he said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me you have to hate your mother, your father, your children, your wife. And you say, well, man, what's going on there? I mean, I think that's shocking. I mean, I think when he turned around and said that to the group, they were like, man, what's he talking about? It was it was very startling to them because in their culture, the utmost thing to do is take care of your family, take care of your mother, take care of your father. And Jesus taught that in many other places. Jesus was really interesting when he taught because how many know more often than not he ran people off his disciples at one point said the things you're saying are hard and at one point everybody left they said you know he said well you know in order to follow me you know and he starts talking about eating his body and drinking his blood and they all left and the only ones that were left were the disciples and they were like we don't have anywhere else to go But what he was trying to do is say, if you're going to follow me, then these are the things that are going to be in your way. Okay? And so he uses a term, and when you understand what he's doing in the Greek, they have a real tendency. This isn't the word hate that we normally would use, that I hate somebody or I dislike them or I'm aggressively against them. This is a word that simply means they can't be above me. And the reason Jesus says this is because when you swear your allegiance to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, what's the first thing you're going to run into? They're going to say, your husband or your wife is going to say, you're going to that stupid church again. Why do you always have to do what God wants you to do in your life? Why do you always have to... Be obedient to the Bible. Why do you always have to do? How many have ever encountered that? In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but I came to bring a sword. And he says, You're always going to be at odds with family members who are telling you to do something different, and you're going to be presented with a choice Am I going to live for the Lord? Am I going to be obedient to him and have allegiance to him? Or am I going to just do what my family tells me to do? And so God, Jesus is trying to make sure, because remember, Jesus wants everybody to come to Him, but He's just trying to say, if you have the right materials for me to build on, you'll have this attitude. And you say, well man, does that play itself out in practical society? And it does. If you go to basic training in the military, the first thing they'll try to do is make sure you understand that when they give you a direct order that your answer should be yes sir, no sir, sir yes sir, no yes, no, what is it? Sir, yes sir, sir no sir, there's two other statements. There are only four acceptable responses, I can't remember what they are. Because it wasn't in the military. But, One of the things they try to explain really quick in basic training is, um, are you able to take my orders and not put anybody else above it? And it's a basic principle because if you get in a war and you're not listening to your commander's orders and you do your own thing, people will die. And so you can't go to basic training and go home to your wife and say, well, I would love to be there at 0600 hours. But it's probably going to be more like seven because my wife wanted me to do some work at the house. And that, yeah, those who are in the military realize that's not an acceptable response. But how many times when we're serving the Lord do we do that? His uh, commands, his obedience to him, um, a lot of times um, we just kind of like, God said it, but... I kind of want to do my own thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, we've got to get past that my wife wants me to do this. My husband wants me to do that. My children want me to do this. And what Jesus is saying is in order to be um, a disciple of mine and to be effective for me, you really have to uh, get over that hurdle of loving your family above loving your Lord. And he's saying you can't be my disciple unless you get over that Okay, the second thing he says is, um, You need to bear your cross. You need to pick up your cross and follow after me. Now you say, Well, that sounds like a pretty normal term. We understand that because Jesus died on the cross and he had to carry a cross, but here's the thing he hadn't done it yet. How many know that? He hasn't done it yet, but he's telling them. He's got his face set toward Jerusalem. He knows what he's about to do, but they don't know that. There's a whole crowd of people that don't realize. They think he's getting ready to be a king. They think he's getting ready to be crowned. They think he's getting ready to come in power. And he's saying, no, I know exactly where I'm going. And in, 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 in hindsight, they would look at that statement and think of it totally different. Because what he was saying was, I'm getting ready to bear... This beam of judgment, execution, like our electric chair or, or, or you know, being injected with um, to die of lethal injection. He's saying, I'm about to be condemned to die, and what I'm asking you to do is to follow after me. And so later they would understand that that's what he was saying. But at the time, they were probably a little confused about what it meant to carry your cross and follow after him. And what he's saying is the next thing you're going to run into is you're going to constantly be thinking about yourself. And he's saying, if you want to really be my disciple, you have to get over that too. And so self, um, here's what self sounds like when you can't get over yourself. It's like, I go to church because it makes me feel this way. I don't go to church because they make me feel this way. I don't go to church because I don't get this, I don't get that, I don't get this. Uh, Lord, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do this. How many of you know that a lot of times the last thing on our mind is serving Him and picking up our cross and following Him? A lot of times church even is about us. And church shouldn't be about me. Church shouldn't be about my comfort. Church shouldn't be about my feelings. Church, You say, well, wait a minute, Chad. I've read a lot of self-help books. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, be like me. You say, well, what did he do? He served. He was always serving to help other people. That means when he goes to a church... He's trying to help other people. He's trying to pull people in the door. He's trying to deal with people's problems. He's In order to serve God, we have to be people that are about our Father's business, not about our own business. And sometimes God can't do anything through the church because he's got a whole church full of followers, but he just doesn't have very many disciples. Very many people that are following him and per, Pursuing Him and going after Him. And so it's hard to ever get a unity, whereas, you know what, we would have a unity if everybody were carrying their cross. If everybody were unified with the same goal, we want to win the lost. We want to help those who are wounded. We want to minister to those uh, who are away from Christ. Jesus uh, was greater than any man that walked on the earth, but He humbled Himself as a servant. And then he goes in and he begins to uh, give some examples, and these are really interesting, examples of a person who is a um, disciple, uh, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And he says, no man sits down to build a tower, and when he does that, he counts the cost to make sure he has enough to build it. And what's really interesting is during that period of time, there was a giant theater that was built and they ran. They didn't build it properly because they didn't exactly figure the cost. They didn't build it well. They built it wrong. Uh, they did it the wrong way. And I think like 5,000 people died. And so they say Jesus may have been referring to that incident. Like if you're going to build it, build it with the right materials or it's going to be a disaster. And, and you know What? There's debate here, and this is really interesting. you probably never thought about this. There's debate here. Is Jesus saying when you come into a life of faith, you have to count the costs or you don't build? Or is it saying that Jesus is counting the costs and he's not going to use you to build with? And the more I think about it, I think it's actually the latter. I think it's Jesus actually saying uh, it says early in John chapter 2 that there were many that came to him to believe, but he wouldn't invest himself in them because he knew that they didn't truly believe. And Jesus is looking for Christians that he can build his church with. He's looking for the right materials, and you'll see in a minute why I think that's the case, that it's Jesus looking for the right kind of faith that he can build with those who are real disciples. that He didn't want to run people away, but he was trying to tell them, there's a certain person I can build my church with that has the right materials, and they're certain that I can't. And he wants everybody to be that person, but they have to count the cost-benefit. It has to be of a benefit to serve the Lord or you can't be his disciple. And then he goes on and he says, what kind of military commander would go into a battle unless he knew exactly how many troops it would take to win. And they say there was actually an incursion that Herod had where he lost the battle because he didn't properly plan and they had known about that and he was actually speaking directly to the people about what happened. And so really cool how Jesus always uses an example, you know, to do his teaching. And so the same thing. He's like that drill instructor that's in basic training and he's saying, you don't have the stuff to be a Marine because you don't listen to orders. You're not able to be under the authority of a military commander, so I wouldn't dare put you out in the field in the middle of a battle because you'll end up running the other direction. There's a story, I don't know if there's any way to tell that it was true or not, but there's a story that somebody had wrote about Alexander the Great, and uh, he was uh, making his conquest and probably one of the greatest military con- conquests in the history of the world. He literally ca- uh, conquered every known region uh, in his in his uh, lifetime. Uh, and, and at a very young age, he would conquered the entire known world at that time. And he was sat down, and he was like, "Man, I don't even I don't have anything else to conquer." He ran out of things to conquer. And they they say, "Well, why he was he so fierce?" In one old story. I don't know if it could possibly be true or not. But he came up to a city. And as he walked up to that city, he began to negotiate their their um, their surrender, which is what he normally did because when they seen his army, they normally just surrendered. And so as he came up to this city to negotiate their surrender, the, the man laughed and he said, why would we surrender to you? Uh, what are you going to do? And so... Alexander, they said there was a tall precipice there of a small mountain ridge. And he said, I'll show you. And so he sent one of his well trained, disciplined, obedient um, groups of fighting men up to that precipice. And he went, and as he waved his finger, they jumped off the end of it and killed themselves. And he just kept doing it. And he said, Do you believe me now? And then they surrendered because they were terrified. You say, man, what an awful story. That is a terrible story. And I don't know. That's amazing that those men would have that level of devotion. And I don't know. I guess they were going to die either way. You know, if you refuse orders. But it's amazing that if you're going into a battle... Jesus knows the type of people that I want to go to battle with me. And they're the people that believe so deeply that they'll give their life for it. In fact, Jesus said, if you hold on to your life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. But if you give your life for me, I've given my life for you. And Jesus said, you've got to believe so deeply that, hey, I'm ready to die for this. And, and that's what Jesus expects from those who follow him is that we have that level of devotion. If they can have that level of devotion for Alexander the Great, how much more can we be for our Lord? Hallelujah. And then he says something real interesting, and I'm going to close with this one. He goes right after those two examples. He goes into salt that has lost its savor. Which is really fascinating that he puts that there. Because he says salt is very valuable. In fact, they had fought wars over salt. They call them the salt wars. And, and a culture that has salt uh, thrives and survives and does well. A culture that doesn't have salt really struggles because salt is such an important compound and it does so many different things as far as in that culture preserving things. Uh, there are just so many areas that salt was necessary and it was about like oil is today. They will fight for that natural resource And Jesus said, um, when he was trying to tell us how to be his disciple, he said, look at salt. He said, salt is extremely valuable, meaning that they'll fight wars for it. People will get killed over this salt. And he says, but something happens to salt where it loses its natural chemical compound. And he said, when salt loses its natural chemical compound, it's worthless. He said, it's thrown into the street and trampled upon by men's feet because it's valueless. So how does something go from being so valuable to not having any value? And he's relating that to the guy who built the house and didn't have the building materials to finish. And he's relating that to the guy that went to war and didn't have the right people to go to war with. And what he's telling us Christians as His disciples is, if we're not a true disciple of Christ, if we're just a follower, God can't fulfill anything through our lives. You can't be the right dad. You say, well, man, what is this Christian life all about? God needs disciples who are mothers and fathers because every decision you make is affecting everybody that's around you. And so He's saying, if you don't have these qualities... Of being my disciple, you have no value to that work I'm trying to do in your family. You know, if, uh, in fact, that watchtower that they were building was a tower uh, to keep thieves away from your vineyard. He's saying, if you're not the type of materials I can build a tower with, who's going to protect everything that the enemy's trying to steal in your life? He said, If I don't have the right people to make war with an enemy and you're not those people, then who's going to stop the enemy from destroying your families? Think about it, church. Those examples really open up when you realize what he's saying. He's saying you've got to be the right kind of disciple it's, it's, it's necessary. Look at the book of Judges. They weren't faithful. They weren't disciples. They weren't following Jesus. They weren't uh, listening to Jesus' orders over their family and themselves. And in the book of Judges, enemies constantly ransacked their cities, constantly stole from them, constantly killed, raped, destroyed, plundered, over and over and over. And church, that's what we see today. If you have a home when there's not somebody in there, who truly is serving the Lord, strongly standing up for God, they don't have the compounds that the salt of the earth is supposed to have. God is saying, I can't do anything through you to reach your family. And God wants us to be able to be the salt of the earth. God wants to build a tower that will protect His people. God wants to make war with the enemy, but if you don't have the stuff... That as a disciple, he can't do anything. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord. Lord, I ask for myself, Lord God, my family, my church, family, Lord. Lord, that we put everything else aside, Lord God, and that you would make us disciples, Lord God. Lord, that we wouldn't be like the crowd of people that follow you because of only benefits, Lord God, or, or as insurance policies from hell, Lord God. But we be people that are true, true disciples, Lord. We follow you through the good, we follow you through the bad. We counted the cost, Lord God, and deemed you worthy, Lord. Help us today, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. So when I ask you today, I want you to think about your life and do a cost-benefit analysis. Pascal's wager says, you read it, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says, his wager was that people will bet with their life on whether they deem him worthy or not. A true disciple will say the benefit of eternal life is greater than rejecting Christ. I just want to ask you today, maybe in your life, you haven't counted the cost. Because here's the truth. We may not be here tomorrow. I may not be here tomorrow. You may not be here tomorrow. Our days aren't guaranteed. God hasn't promised today. God hasn't promised tomorrow. And I'm asking, I'm begging you to do a cost analysis, a benefit analysis. I decided in my life, God was worth it. The small inconveniences that are in my life for serving the Lord, the small decisions I make every day, they're infinitely more valuable than if I were to reject the Lord and decide to have a life without Jesus Christ. And so I'm just asking you today, it's very simple. Jesus Christ, it's almost as if he would turn to this crowd of people and he'll say, Who will be my disciples? You say, Man, is he trying to run me away? Is he trying to say that I don't have the stuff? No, he's trying to say, I want everybody to have the stuff. Because if you have the stuff, we can build a tower. If you have the stuff, we can build a church. If you have the stuff, we can make war with the enemy. If you're a true disciple, We can do anything, church, if you're a true disciple. And Jesus is saying, I want all of you to be truly my disciples and follow me, really. Hallelujah. If you need prayer today, maybe you've never committed your life to Christ. Today is the day to do that. We're here to pray for you. We're here to minister to you. You say, man, I'm going through some things. I'm going through some things in my life. I'm struggling. We want to minister to you. The Holy Spirit wants to minister to you. How many know the Holy Spirit can speak into your situation? The Bible says that God gives gifts severally, diversely as He wills. God wants the body to minister to the body. God wants to give a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. God wants to speak directly into your life and you say, well, how does that happen? It happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me know that happens at this altar up here. Hallelujah. If you've got a problem, you say, well, man, Chad, I'll bear it myself. The Bible says bear one another's burdens. If you've got even the smallest thing, you say, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not altar worthy. I mean, you know, we think that sometimes not altar worthy it's a minor thing i'm just sick the bible says if you're sick gather the elders together let's anoint you with oil They say well man it's just depression i've been struggling with my whole life it's time to be free from depression They say well it's just relationship problems it's not that big of a deal it's a big deal god wants you to get through those relationship problems he wants to speak your relationship problems you say it's guilt man you're in the right place if it's guilt because this is where we lay the guilt down this is where we lay the shame down this is where our brothers and our sisters pray for us how many of you know this is an important area up here so I'm going to say a word of prayer and I just want you to work your way up here if you've been away from the Lord it's time to get it right God's calling to you, not me God's calling to you Hallelujah, Heavenly Father right now Lord Father, I pray that your spirit would move in this place, Lord. Father, move upon your people, Lord God. Father, words of prophecy, words of wisdom. Oh, Father, let your people begin to speak, Lord God. Father, let the wounded call out, Lord. Father, begin to move in this place, Lord.